Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there's one provided in the pew. I think it's on page 1213. And you can turn there and follow along with us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. And let us pray. Lord, thank you this morning for bringing us here. We know, Lord, it's by your providence that we sit here today, that we're alive today. And the privilege that our ears could experience this morning is that of hearing the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring the word of God to us, that it would convict our hearts. It would teach us how to live. And it would give us, move our wills to actually do that. So I pray, Lord, in this passage this morning, it would become evident what we're supposed to do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So first... Peter, chapter 3, we're going to be looking this morning at verses number 13 to 17. I kind of ended last week on verse 13, but let me just bring you up to where I'm going this morning. We have come to the last section of this epistle of 1 Peter. The first section dealt with salvation. I think you get a sense of where Peter's going with this when it comes to suffering, because that's where we're heading. It deals with salvation, the first part, the importance of all Christians to have a real good understanding and grasp of their own salvation in Christ Jesus. A second section focused on submission and the different ways Christians are to submit, coupled with the characteristics and attitudes appropriate for proper submission Submission that is pleasing to the Lord. And now we come to this third major section, which is the last major section of Peter, and that is suffering. By way of wisdom, the Apostle Peter has laid the foundation for Christians to be ever prepared for any kind of trial or suffering that may come their way. If these principles are put into practice, then we, would be, we'll, we will be able to overcome and get through and actually be a testimony uh, to those around us during times of suffering and persecution. That means that all Christians need to grow in these, tru- these truths to understand the first two sections so the last section won't turn out to be con- too confusing to someone, that the third major section of First Peter has to do with suffering for the cause of righteousness. And of course, today, we're going to consider suffering unjustly. The focus here is suffering as a citizen. The prosperity of suffering as a Christian citizen. Someone living in the world, wherever they're at, and just living the Christian life when it's hard. 
when it's difficult. So you can see how already how radically different the Christian response is, is to things as compared to the old sinful way that we were all accustomed to. Before we came to know Christ and his word on matters of salvation and sanctification, we all responded in a way completely opposite of what the Scripture teaches. This Lord's Day, the Word of God is instructing us on how to respond to unjust suffering. In the first few verses of our text today, we have two conditional sentences. One forms a question, and the other is in the form of a concession. In other words, how can we know these are conditional sentences? Well, if you notice in the first two verses, in verse 13 and 14, it says this. Look with me. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? That's a question. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So the way we know they're conditional sentences is by that little word, if. So both are placed there for our encouragement, especially to be able to carry out the four admonitions that are going to follow that we're going to look at today. Now, remember, these passages follow on the footsteps of passages that have come before. And, of course, King David was quoting Psalm 34 in our last section of Scripture because he learned that even on the very worst of days, the very thing that turns a bad day into a good day, is this, that the Lord is with you through the valleys. See, David learned how to live a blessed life. And of course, there were at least four things that, or three things that we saw last week, and it was this. The first one was that he saw that he learned to walk on the right path And what what does that mean in verse number 11 of chapter 3? That he must turn away from evil and do good. And he must seek peace and pursue it. So he learned that you can't just turn away from evil. It must be replaced by a pursuit of that which is good and that which seeks peace. If you are to love life, you must avoid evil. You must actually despise evil. You must hate evil, and what you hate, you will stay away from. And then you must pursue peace. Now, this peace, of course, requires an effort. A peace is, peace is good for the soul and the well-being of God's people. And we already know that that peace meant here is that we are made at peace with the sacrificial, through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ by his shed blood. We have peace with God. So because we have peace with God, we can actually have peace with other people. And of course, that led to David learned by living a 
living with the right perspective. And of course, what was that in verse number 12? For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayers. And then, of course, that's divine favor. And then also divine disfavor in verse 12 of chapter 3. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, the incentive for doing good is the knowledge of the actual presence of God in a person's life. I know God is with me. I know God is real. I know God tells me the truth. I can trust his promises. I can lean upon what he says and live my life worry-free because of that. And then, of course, the incentive for doing good is that very knowledge, that I know the Lord sees In verse number 12, I know that he hears, and those who live for the Lord are motivated by a real consciousness of God's character and God's actions. In other words, God is not going to make a left turn on us and lose us. God's character is consistent. It's it's regular. You You can bank on it because he's not going to go against his will. He's not going to go against his word. And see, that's what Christians know and gives them great stability in this life. Also, a third thing you notice up there, that he lived with the right policy, and that's where I ended last time. And what I meant by that was, it says in verse number 13, who is there? Here's the question. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Of course, A good day for a believer who loves life is not one which is catered to, but one in which that person, that believer, experiences God's help, God's comfort, God's support, God's blessing in the middle, in the middle of their problems. Not being delivered from their problems, but in the middle of their problems, not being delivered from their trials, but in the middle of their trials, in the beginning and the end of their trials, God is with us because trials are usually short-lived. They don't go on forever. So David ended Psalm 34, which he's been quoting all along here, with this passage of Scripture. The righteous cry... And the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. That's what he's learned. And remember, what, is he, what's, what happened to David? He was on the run from Saul. He was now living in a cave in Adullam. That's what he was doing. And his family and friends came to minister to him there. So I don't know, being a king, you know, can you call that a good day? It was not a good day. But it was a good day because David knew the Lord delivered him out of his troubles. And the Lord gave him peace, and the Lord gave him joy, because in that same passage, it says David praised the Lord for what he had done. So he was very aware that God was involved with his life. David learned, and we ought to learn too, that's the point, that God is near to his children for blessing, for good, all the time, not just some of the time. God doesn't just doesn't take off and leave you alone. He's always there with you. And so those are the things. And so I ended with saying this, that the good life is a life in which God is near to you for blessing. 
where you experience God's help and support and blessing in the middle of problems and trials. So since God is watching over us and hearing our prayers, whatever people do to us will not hurt us in the long run. But they will try to harm us. At some time, in some way, believers will be a target. In fact, already in 1 Peter, we discovered that there were accusations against believers in chapter 2, verse 12. There was ignorant talk against believers, chapter 2, verse 15. There were evil insults against believers. There were threats against believers. There was a malicious talk against believers. All those things were happening to believers. Now, very quickly, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 12. There's a few verses I want just to point out for, by way of example that this has always been the case. It's never, it, it always will be the case, and that's the point of Scripture. If you notice in Acts chapter 12, verse number 1 through 3, it says this. It says, now about that time, Acts chapter 12, verse 1, King Herod, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. So right there we see that there's his motive. And then, then it's, look what it says in verse 2. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. But I want you to go down to verse number 11. Because verse number 11 is really the key to the passage of Scripture here. It says, when, it says, when Peter came to himself, he says, Now I know for sure that the Lord has set forth, sent forth his angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jew, Jewish people were expecting. What were they expecting to do? They were expecting to put Peter to death like they put James to death. And that's all just for being a Christian. So, see, the church was praying here in that text. And, see, a bad day turned out to be a good day for Peter. Why? Because God delivered him. See, that's what made the day good. God delivered him. God was there, right there. So, the, back to 1 Peter, the answer to the rhetorical question in verse number 13 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter, who is it there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Well, the answer is no one. That's the answer to the question. No one, no one can harm you. But if you look at the text, our part is to prove zealous for what is good. That's our job. And of course, when you think about that, someone who is zealous is someone who is painstakingly pursuing a goal. They are relentless to get where they're going. And that's what a zealous person is. You know, an overzealous person gets into a lot of trouble because they end up running over people and not considering it. So, so he's saying here we ought to be zealous for good works, painstakingly pursuing good works in our life. And good has already been defined in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, verse 12, in this next section is going to be fleshed out. 
So in verse number 14 of chapter 3, notice how it starts. It says, but even if. See, that's a concessionary statement, meaning you may not always be going through suffering right now, but it's also not hypothetical. Christians should always be ready for some kind of verbal and physical suffering. So the focus here is that Christians are encouraged to to actually pursue desirable behavior, a positive form of conduct which pursues peace and righteousness. In other words, upright behavior, even if that upright behavior leads to suffering. Now, I don't know if we think about it like that, that upright behavior can actually lead to trouble. Doing what's right in this world can actually lead to trouble. Everything's upside down in our world today. Everybody knows that. What is good is bad, and bad is good, and and it's all over the place, right? You don't even know what to think anymore or what to do in some cases. So if believers do this, as it says in our text, God actually will reward you and be near to you for favor, help, comfort, and blessing. It is similar to what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, he said this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for doing right. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because you're connected to me. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus said, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the same principle Peter is explaining to us this morning. Another way of Saying it could be this. So they went on their way, it says in Acts 5.41, from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's, that's odd. That is not, that is not a, a kind of normal way of thinking that we're used to, but it is a Christian way of thinking that we need to consider that. And don't forget that Scripture has already told us that Christians have been called to some type of suffering, as it mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says you were called for this purpose. And let me just remind you and refresh your memory about some of the things that I mentioned there, some reasons for suffering. Well, suffering for doing what is right. For it... For it is better, it says in 1 Peter 3, if God should will so that you suffer for doing what is right. Also suffering for according to the will of God. That many times and often suffering is in God's will for us. And then suffering for our testing and being a Christian, all right? Having our faith tested to see where we're at. Suffering will do that. Usually good times don't do that. That's why the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, it's better to be, what's better, what's, where's, where's it better to be, at a wedding or a funeral? 
It's better to be at a funeral. You know what? You don't learn anything from a wedding. But I tell you, at a funeral, you know what you learned at a funeral? I'm heading there. Where am I going to go after that, right? That's what a funeral teaches you. See, that's sobering, and we don't want to go there. We don't want to dwell there, but we ought to be considered every day that we're going to die. Where are we going when we die? We're going to stand before God because the Bible says it's appointed once for man to die, and then what? Judgment. That's what it says in Hebrews. All right? Suffering also for living a godly life. If you are a Christian who is living a godly life in an ungodly world, you will suffer. Something will come against you. Now, probably, and I want to mention this, in the face of opposition, that will be a great test on where we're at as a Christian or whether we're a Christian at all. In times of difficulty in the church, we need to cultivate Christian joy and help and encouragement, especially in this age in which we live, we find ourselves today. Right now, we have relative peace and freedom and a good level of security in our country that we live. Peter was writing to people who were facing sharp hostility from their employers, from their neighbors from people at large, and possibly also from government officials. Now, what happens often when you read a passage of Scripture like this in in 1 Peter is that you kind of feel sometimes disconnected, especially in our country. And why is that? Because in this portion of Scripture, you and I are suffering little persecution for being a believer, right? I can say that, right? We're relatively suffering little for being a believer. Some, but little. But did you ever imagine that doing good may lead to hostile verbal attacks against you and I in certain circumstances? For example, when a believer puts forth a Christian moral standard to anybody they're talking to in a conversation, let's just say you start talking about the ideal of marriage that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Is that something just easily taken by people today? No, we live in a culture where that's not taken. You're, you're, you are a bigot, you are, whatever, you are narrow, you are not up on the times, and so therefore you're going to receive a pushback. What about if you start talking about homosexual and lesbian behavior, that it is wrong because God says it's wrong and is sinful? What's going to happen there? Right? It could be that you uh, will be called old-fashioned and hateful for even talking about it. What about abortion? Abortion is still wrong and still sinful, even though our government says it's legal. What about promiscuity? Just living together, not getting married at all. And you talk about, well, promiscuity is sinful because it teaches that a person can do what they want without any moral restraint, responsibility, or judgment. See, they'll say you're not up on the times. Marriage is out. Getting married one man, woman, that's out. Come on. Come up to the times. 
Or maybe you'll say, well, you know what? There's only one way to be made right with God, and that's through believing and repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus Christ alone. See, some religions will say, I don't really care if you believe in Jesus, but don't say it's Jesus alone because there's many paths to God. It's whatever you decide. We're all heading to the same precipice, right? No, that's not true. There's only one Savior, one God-man who came into this world, perfect man, came to die on the cross for sinners. No one ever did that. Then paid for the sin eternally, then defeated Satan in death, and then rose again, and now is seated at the right hand of God and is coming back again. See, no one did that. So I can emphatically and dogmatically say there is only one way to be right with God, and that's through Jesus Christ. But I tell you what, that's not, that doesn't go over well in a pluralistic society, does it? No, because, no, my opinion on how you get to right with God is, is just as equal and as your opinion. So, so then nobody knows what's right or what is wrong. See, you will get pushback and degrading comments from just talking about these things. These are just the mentions. These are just a few of them. See, so then the Christian finds out that their standard of righteousness is not acceptable in the culture around them and with the people around them. Christianity is mildly being tolerated today. However, underground, there is a growing anti-Christian opposition fueled by political correctness, postmodern pluralism, the gay rights movement, and spiritual wickedness in high places that is fueling all of those things and many more. Why? Because you follow Christ. Because you're a Christian. See, there are Christians right now in the world who are being denied or losing their jobs, losing their homes, being denied basic human rights and even losing their lives just because they're followers of Jesus Christ. So, in other words, Peter wants us to mark this down. Mark this on your calendar. The possibility of suffering is, a, is the general rule for the Christian. The possibility, I say. We're not going through much of it now. But the possibility of us going through it someday is very high and very real because things are changing so incredibly rapidly in the world. One day you wake up and something you never thought was happened happened, right? So this is the world we live in. And believe me, behind all that, Satan wants to usurp the authority of Christ and his plan and put himself in place. And that is what he is trying to do. He's already lost, but he has a short time to do that. So the discipline of Christian suffering, first of all, is is really would be uh, that of suffering as a Christian. So that's where I go this morning. And so there are four admonitions I want to look at in our text today. And here's the first one, and it's found right there in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, right in the middle of the verse. Verse 14, it says, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. 
So that's the first thing he tells us when it comes to doing this. Don't be fearful. Right? So there's, there's two options here as to what this ad, admonition refers. The first one would be the admonition uh, not to fear what they fear, drawn from Isaiah chapter 8, where the Bible tells us that for it says, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or dread or have the dread of it. Now, or it could also mean uh, used emphatically, do not fear their intimidation. In other words, those who instigate. Don't let them scare you or disturb you as to what you know to be right in thought and in behavior, indeed. So during the times of suffering, people can be intimidated. They, people can be intimidating. However, it has been established already that our fear is to be directed at only one person. Again, drawn from Isaiah chapter Eight, and I'd like you to turn there because I'm going to refer, be referring to so, several scriptures. I don't know if I put all of them up, but I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 8. Keep your hand there in 1 Peter because it looks like Peter is alluding to that section of scripture where he simply says this uh, in verse number 13 of Isaiah chapter 8. Actually, I did put it up. He says this. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Right? He is establishing there, of course, Isaiah is establishing, and, and Peter wants us to see that we do not have to be afraid of the intimidation of people, what they're going to say about us, what they're going to say to us, what they're going to try to do to undermine us as believers. Don't be afraid of them. Of course, Proverbs 29, 25 tells us the fear of man brings a snare. All right, we do not, we do not have to be afraid of men as a believer. And of course, the second part of that passage says, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. And why don't we have to fear men? Because men are just dust. They're given a little bit of power for a short period of time, but they're all heading to the same place. I like the passage where it says in Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord, with the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. So to be one who fears God is in the the technical language of the Old Testament to be a true worshiper of the one true God. And the element of fear in the usual sense is not the absence of true worship, but it includes true worship. And worship is to set God in his important place, give him the honor that is due his name, and give him the weight that is due his name. The one who is creator, who is our supreme dignity 
who is the redeemer of repentant, Christ-trusting sinners. He is the only one we need to fear. The secret in persecution and opposition is to the practical lordship of Jesus Christ. If we fear God, we need not fear men. The fear of the Lord conquers every other fear vying for control of us. That's what it's doing. So here is the prosperity of suffering as a citizen. The first point here is you don't have to be afraid because God is with you in your suffering. He knows everything that's going on. He knows everything that's coming against you. He knows everything, and so therefore, don't be afraid. And usually another thing is that fear cripples you where you can't do anything else. God says, no, you don't need to be crippled, but you need to do the next thing. And what's the next admonition? Well, the next admonition is this, worship Christ. Look at our text in 1 Peter. Keep your hand there in, in Isaiah, but again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, what does it say? It says, but sanctify Christ as Lord where? In your hearts. So instead of fear, we are to acknowledge the authority of Christ. The only thing that will keep at bay the fear of men is the practice of the lordship of Christ. That is, in the core of our being, including our feelings, our thoughts, and our will, Christ is set apart. He is venerated. He is adored in our heart as Lord. So worship is really the antidote of worry, fear, and depression. The phrase, sanctify Christ as Lord, is used actually in, in a declarative sense. It is acknowledging Christ as holy, and according, uh, and a, according him, his proper place. It's the inner acknowledgement of Christ's authority in the life of the Christian. And so the apostle uh, Peter continues to allude to Isaiah chapter 8. And let me give you some background, and I want you to turn to chapter 8 again in verse number 13. And I want you to, here's the background here. Ahaz, king of Judah, faced a crisis because of an impending invasion by the Assyrian army. The king of Israel and Syria wanted Ahaz to join them in an alliance. Ahaz refused. So Israel and Syria threatened to invade Judah. Ahaz, in the meantime, made an alliance with Assyria, and the prophet Isaiah warned him against ungodly alliances and urged him to trust God for deliverance. So that's where that passage of Scripture comes in, and that's in verse number 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should, what? Regard as holy, and what does that mean? To set apart. In your heart as holy because he is the one who will give us the information, the knowledge we need to be delivered from our enemies. That's the point. If you don't set apart Christ in your heart, then our fear leads us to the wrong, in the wrong direction. Fear always leads in the wrong direction. To ask Advice usually to unreliable sources 
thus causing us to make wrong decisions. Now, right there in our passage, notice down to verse number 19 of Isaiah chapter 8. So if you look there at Isaiah chapter 8, verse number 19, you will see where the counsel was being sought. And of course, it's being sought in most dubious sources. Notice what it says. It says, when they say to you, consult the mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter. Of course, it's a question. Then he says this, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? See, he's bringing out the absurdity of where people sometimes get their advice for life. Right? Let me go to my horoscope. Let me go to the hand reader. Let me go there, and the Bible is saying there, well, you know what, that's just the wrong place. You're going to get the wrong information, the wrong advice, and it could ruin the rest of what your life. Why don't you just go to God who tells you the truth? Right? Isn't that a, a logical conclusion? Why don't people go there then? And I know that when I go to have Chinese food and I get those fortune cookies, somebody's been drinking a lot of rice wine when they come up with those things. I mean it. You know? You know, so, man, yeah, I think that's happening in my life right now. That's what I need. Oh, I tell you. But that's where, you know what, people put a lot of stock into that. A lot of, you know what, we need to stay as far away from that kind of uh, whatever you want to call it. It's not counsel. It's counsel from the devil to keep you in bondage. That's what it is. We need to stay as far away from that kind of stuff as possible, and we need to really answer the question here, should not a people consult their God? Yes! That's who we need to consult. We need to consult our God. That's what we need to do. And so, yes, Christ is to be set apart. He's to be venerated. He's to be adored as Lord in the core of our being so that he continually occupies a unique place in our heart. See, this is, the, this is the approach of a Christian, to be ready, to be a ready witness of the hope we have in Christ because Christ is on the throne of our heart. He occupies our mind. He inflames our emotions. He moves and conforms us to his will and for his will. Fear just will keep our minds murky and our mouths shut because we won't know what to say. But when fear is absent, blessing and boldness to speak in behalf of the Lord will be intact. Instead of fear, Christians are to acknowledge the authority of Christ, and for what purpose? Always being ready to make Christ's salvation plan and his holiness known to the world. So here is the prosperity of suffering as a citizen in this portion of Scripture, that you are already settled on who is the Lord and to whom you serve. You're settled on that. There is no 
debate about it. Who is Lord? Who is the master of my life? Christ is. And because he is, then I can do the next thing. And what's the next thing? Here's the next thing. The next thing is be ready to explain. All right, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I want you to notice what it says there, and this, this flows very nicely in our minds about what we ought to do, right? Be ready to explain. Explain what? Well, look what it says in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, always, in the middle of the verse, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is where? In you. He's talking to a real believer here, right? And where is the hope? The hope I have is in my heart, and that hope has been given to me by Christ because Christ is the hope, and so he has settled that for me and says here, so a Christian, this third admonition is this, that a Christian is someone who explains the Christian faith to non-Christians. A Christian is is able to explain the Christian faith to non-Christians. But not only explain the Christian faith to non-Christians, they're also able to explain the Christian life to non-Christians. Because they're going to see your life usually first before they hear your words. That's usually how it happens. If they see your life, it may lead you, it may God may bring you. And another thing in the background of this is that suffering, as I already mentioned, is a great platform for evangelism. It's a great platform for evangelism. See, this word defense here in the passage is a legal term used to make a defense before a judge. It means to speak in one's own defense. It means to defend oneself. And of course, we get the from the Greek word apologetic. It doesn't mean you're apologizing for anything. What it means is that you're actually giving an answer, a defense about why are you different? Why is your moral standard different? Why is your behavior in life different, especially in the place of trouble and suffering? Why are you responding to this trouble in your life in a way that I I can't? Why? It's brought to my attention that you're different. See, at that point, are you able to give a defense? Have you come to the place in your life you're able to do that? If someone followed you around for a week and they were able to observe your manner of life and even read your thoughts, do you think that you would be able to persuade them that you are a Christian and what a Christian is? Are you able to do that? Peter's saying that all Christians should be able to do that. And the, the reason why you may not be doing that now is because, number one, that uh, Christ is not set apart in your heart and that you're afraid. That's why you're not doing it, because you're afraid of the consequences that may come if you tell them how to become a Christian. See, in other words, do you have your own testimony Do you have your own apologetic, your own defense of the hope that is within you? If you are a Christian, you should have one. And how should that defense look? It should look something like this. I had a past life, right? It was sinful, 
I was heading to hell. And then I was convicted of my sin because I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and I realized that I was under God's wrath and in great trouble knowing I couldn't rescue myself or do anything to save myself from God's wrath. And then I heard that Jesus Christ took my wrath on the cross and that if I just repent and turn from what I'm trusting in and trust in Jesus Christ alone, I could be saved. I can have eternal life. I can be forgiven of all my sins. I can have a cleansed conscience, no more guilt. I can have all those things, all right? And so you explain that some, to somebody, and you tell them the actual conversion experience, and then your present new life at conversion. This is why I'm living the way I'm living, because Christ has changed my heart, because he, he, he is transforming my mind with the word of God. He's given me his thoughts to think instead of my own and the world's and Satan's that the thoughts he wants to plan in us, he's given those things to us. And of course, a great example is Paul before King Agrippa. In Acts chapter 25, you don't need to turn there, but I just want to read it to you. What it says, he's, he's standing, this is like the last time, out of three times in Acts, he gives his testimony And he says there in Acts 26, verse 1 through 3, Agrippa said to Paul, Paul's giving his testimony, you are permitted to speak for yourself. In other words, give a defense. Then Paul stretched out his hands and proceeded to make his defense, use the same word there, in regard to all things of which I am accused of by the Jews. There is the accusations because he's a believer I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense, my apologetic before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and the questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So in other words, in giving his testimony, Paul lays out his past life before conversion. What was he? He was a rabbi. And he he was saying to them, listen, you think you hated the Jews or you hated the Christians? I hated the Christians way more than you. I went and I was going on the road to Damascus to put them to death and to put them in prison. And that is where I saw this light and I heard the voice of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, what he did to me, he's... He convicted me of my sin. I realized I was not just persecuting the church. I was persecuting the Messiah. And so, therefore, I became a Christian that day. In that spot, around noontime, I became a Christian, and everything in my life changed. God gave me a new direction He delivered me from the domain of darkness and Satan. He transferred me to the kingdom of light and God. And he bought me out of the slave market of sin. And now he's given me a new message. And what is that message? Here's Paul's message. To open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith. That's what he said to King Agrippa. 
That was his defense. It was quite simple, actually. It was not complicated. He just told them what happened. See, so in other words, a Christian has to have something happen to them before they can even have a testimony. But remember this, all Christians have a testimony. All Christians have an apologetic. They have a defense. And what is that defense for? About the hope that is in you. Because that hope that's in you, that's what they need. That's what all people need. They need the hope that you have. Are you able to tell somebody about the hope? Have you grown that far to be able to tell people what happened to you? That's why I like in our, our membership class when I ask people to write out their testimony. And, and most people have never written it out. But when they start writing it out, they, they begin to, to look at their life and see how the Father was drawing them, even pre-conversion, to Christ. Some of the people and the events that, that were orchestrated providentially by God to draw that person to a place where they realized they needed Jesus Christ to save them, that no one else could, and that he is the only way, the only truth, the only wife, life. Nobody goes to the Father except through him. See, that's what you got to know that. That's why Peter starts out with, know you're saved. Then know how to submit. And then once you know those things, then here is how you learn to suffer when persecuted for doing what is right, for standing and proclaiming what is true. That's what you're going to be persecuted with. So you should and I should be able to give a reason for our faith in Christ and following him as our Lord and Savior And your attitude towards the questioner in verse number 15 ought to be this, yet with gentleness and reverence, so that your approach will always be reverent toward God, respectful towards everyone else who's asking you those things. So here is, again, the prosperity of suffering as a citizen, that you you find out that you are God's spokesman, an ambassador right where you're at, right on your job, right in your family, right in your neighborhood, you are the ambassador. You are the one who's supposed to tell people. And you can and you will and you should. But that leads me to the last one, the last last admonition this morning. And they all are connected. In other words, you really can't have one without the other. And here's the last one. To keep your conscience clear. To keep your conscience clear. Now look at verse number 16. It says this in chapter 3. It says, and keep your conscience, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which they are, that you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, Just think of that for a moment. Everybody has a conscience, right? Can that conscience be surgically removed? No. But I tell you what, your conscience has a loud voice. 
when, you're do, when you do something wrong, according to your moral standard, your conscience screams at you, right? After you did something wrong, your conscience screams even louder. But keep disobeying your conscience, and you sear your conscience. It becomes like calluses on your hand. In other words, some people are, have no conscience, and that's true. It's so seared, they, they are not moved one way or the other. They just do what they want. That's called a scoffer in, in the book of Proverbs. They just do what they want. There's no learning. There's no teaching. There's no discussion. There's no reasoning. They just do what they want. And there are some people like that. Unfortunately, there is. But the word conscience really means to know. You have heard the statement, let your conscience be your guide. You ever hear that? Well, that is a big fallacy. And the reason why it's a big fallacy is because your conscience can be influenced by many factors. Environment, family, bad family, education, bad education, culture, the bad taboos in a culture that you take on as good taboos or no taboos at all. See, so, so the conscience is this internal judge that witnesses to us and that enables us to know with either approving our actions or accusing our actions. That's what a conscience is, right? And God's given us. As a matter of fact, on the day of judgments, God's going to use our conscience as part of the judgment process tells us that in Romans, but I'm not going there today. But I do want you to notice this passage of Scripture on the screen. It says this. It says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Now, I want you to notice the two things that are connected in this passage of Scripture that I know I have a good conscience. But why do I know I have a good conscience? Because my desire is to conduct myself honorably in all things. That's why I have a good conscience. I know the difference between right and wrong. I know the difference between God's way and every other way. I'm learning that, and you are learning that too. All right, so that means that you not, good, a good conscience gives the spiritual ability to allow one to make moral choices between good and evil, God's way, and every other way. Another passage of Scripture says it like this, for our proud, our proud confidence is this, 2 Corinthians 1.12, the testimony of our conscience in that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. In other words, the conduct and the desire to live good and do right has everything to do whether you maintain a good conscience. Because if you notice in 1 Peter, it says our job is to keep a good conscience. Keep it. It's your job to do that. It's my job to do that. To make sure that my conscience is always sensitive to the word of God and to the voice of God, always willing to go back to the word of God and to be able to get my information from there and nowhere else 
so that the word of God can condition my conscience to know what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And then another passage of Scripture says this. I don't know if I put that up there or not, but, but we had renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, condemning, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Again, behavior, a good conscience, go together in Scripture. Now, saying all that, what are ways that make our conscience sound? All right? Well, there's several ways. Regeneration is the first one. You've got to be saved to have a cleansed conscience. All right? Because everybody prior to salvation has a defiled conscience. Their conscience has been defiled by sin and has been misinformed by almost everybody. That's why if somebody grow up, grows up saying, there's no God, I don't believe in all that stuff, there's no real standard, then that's going to inform their conscience on how they live. That means I can live with no rules. I can do whatever I want. You know why? I'm going to live, enjoy life, and I'm going to die, and that's it. But they forget, or they never hear, or maybe they did and re rejected it, that someday they have to give an account before God on how they lived. Right? God has records of Revelation chapter 20, how, how, how you lived your life, right? The books are going to be open. And the dead are going to be raised from Hades, right? And those who are alive are going to be brought together in resurrected bodies. That means they can't die anymore. This is the second death. And God's going to open the books, and he's going to look, and he's going to judge justly on how a person lived their life. And you know what? Someone who never trusted Christ, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever, where the false prophet and the Antichrist is. So in this passage of Scripture right here, or how we have a conditioned conscience, you've got to be born again. You've got to be saved. All right, look at this passage right here. It says this, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's describing salvation. Salvation through the blood of Christ. What makes our conscience clean is the blood of Jesus Christ. It wipes away our sin. It wipes away our guilt that goes along with sin because the conscience has a lot to do with guilt. And there's false guilt and there's real guilt. When you're a believer, you experience real guilt. But real guilt doesn't have to stay there long because if you confess your sin then he's faithful and just to forgive you over your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That cleansing, again, that language of cleansing has to do with our conscience. That's how we maintain a good conscience. That every day I wake up, I don't feel guilty about things because I've been regularly confessing my sin and walking with the Lord, and the Lord's been developing my conscience. So we have been cleansed and forgiven. We are at peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we have been restored to a relationship with God. I don't want anybody to fear. I know who God is and what he's done, what he told me in the word of God. I follow that. And then there's the next thing is the Holy Spirit. Once you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit of God, right? 
What does, what does the Holy Spirit of God actually do in our life? He prompts you and I as to what is proper conduct. What is proper thinking? That's what he does in our life. And he is making us holy. I've already mentioned that. He teaches us God's standards, God's word, God's law, producing in us a new disposition in life. That's what he does. And that all has to do with developing a sound conscience. And then, of course, a third thing is this. Guard what goes into your mind. Guard goes, you know what they say, garbage in, garbage out, right? If you put garbage in your mind and heart, well, what are you going to have in there? Garbage. You got to get the garbage out, all right? You got to take the trash out. One thing that, you know, I've learned as a husband, the trash has to go out. (laughs) And if it don't go out, it don't go out, but it starts stinking. So, you know what? When there's trash in your mind, it's got to get out of there. Or, you know what? It starts stinking. And your behavior starts stinking. Everything starts stinking when there's trash. You got to get it out. All right? Look at this passage of Scripture. In Proverbs, in Proverbs, it says this, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch your heart. Watch what you're thinking. What's going into your mind? We have a lot. We, we have, you know, we have information overload every day of our life in, our country, in this world, right? You better watch how much you let that internet and those websites and waste your time and not develop your conscience and not develop your mind. Spend time in the Word of God and you'll be able to balance out the rest of it. All right, then the next three are kind of go together. Listen to expositional preaching, which I'm doing this morning. We're going through the Word of God. We're looking at what the Word of God says. We're giving you the mind. I'm giving you the mind of God. I don't want to waste your time with a bunch of stories. I want to give you what it says in Scripture. You can take it, and and you can follow what what I'm saying to you, and you can say it's right there in this text. This is what God wants us to know. So we have to listen to preaching. And, and believe me, I am of the opinion that a Christian ought to meditate on what they're listening to. Don't come and tell me that you're listening to five messages this week. Because you know what? I guarantee you, 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 you can't tell me anything of those five messages. But listen to one and meditate on it. You'll learn what it says. You'll do what it says. We don't have that ability with all the information that we have coming at us to be able to synthesize and break down in our mind to be able to practice it. No, we, we can't do that. You listen to one message and get what it's saying and put it into practice in your life, and it will change you. And then, of course, of course, a careful study of the Word of God. You know what it says in Timothy Chapter 2, verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who needed not to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, going to the word of God and not saying, well, this is what it says to me. What does it say to you? Well, this is what it says to that person. What does it say? That's what we ought to get to. 
careful study of the Word of God. What does it actually say? I don't care what, what you think. What does it say? Study the Word of God so you find out what it says. And, of course, the last one would be memorize Scripture. Memorize Scripture. This is what, this is what King David wrote in Psalm 119. Did he write that one? I think he did. Verse 9 through 11, it says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, the meditating and the memorizing of Scripture will keep you away from your old ways of sinning. So the conscience is the only safe, it's actually, it's the only safe guide when the word of God is its teacher. You got that? The conscience is the only a safe guide when the word of God is its teacher. Because the word of God is going to inform the conscience of truth. And then it's going to change everything in your life. So, saying all that, here are some suggestions to keep our conscience clear. Number one, never do anything you are in doubt about. If it's doubtful, don't. All right? Secondly, never do what you know to be wrong. Thirdly, do everything you know to be right. Fourthly, search God's word for his point of view. Fifthly, seek godly wisdom. Sixthly, put everything aright you have done wrong as as far as it is, is in your power to do so. Number seven, keep short accounts with God and fellow human beings. And then the last one, not necessarily the last one, the one last one I have is pray for wisdom. So here, again, is the prosperity of suffering as a citizen in this world. You will keep a clear conscience, never having the fear what other people say about you. You got that? So in other words, in suffering, when people come against you, and say, insult you, and say all of manner of things against you, I don't have to be guilty in my heart that what they say is true because I already know what I'm, my behavior is. I already know what I am thinking. I already know what God has done in my life. So I don't have to fear them. Christ is set apart in my heart. And of course, I don't have to be afraid of what they say to me. So, if you look back at 1 Peter, this is how I'm closing this, and this is what Peter does. So, here's the question. Why should we keep a good and sound conscience? Well, the life of goodness will show that the slander of other people will be a lie. Look at what it says in verse number 16. Again, 
It says this, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So here's a promise, all right, that God is the one who's going to shame them, shaming those who are hostile to believers, and their shame will be either in the present or it will be in the future, or it will be both. God will shame them, realizing that what they accused the believer of was false and was a lie. But God is the one who does the shaming, not us. And how does he conclude? Look at verse number, well, look at verse number 17. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better... If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. God wills doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong, even if its results are suffering. It's always better to do what's right. When you do that, you will have the opportunities that God presents to us for giving an answer of the hope that lies within us. So we can't forget that God does does test our faith and does use the difficult side of his providential care to do that. And why does he do that? He He does it to bring us closer to him. He does it so that we will deal with our remaining sin. He does it to make us stronger in the faith. He does it to bring us to depend more regularly and closely on him. So then, every trial allows the Holy Spirit to make us more holy in our thoughts and in our behavior, therefore giving us more opportunity to speak without fear, but actually with boldness about what God has done to us in our life. So so summing it all up, don't be fearful, worship Christ, be ready to explain, and keep your conscience clear. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, again, I thank you for the word of God. It It is so powerful to see what is contained in Scripture for our edification, for our benefit. So, Lord, we can actually be the people you want us to be. I pray, Lord, let us put these things into practice. Especially, Lord, when our day is so uncertain. Especially when this world is so fragile. I pray, Lord, that we would be the people that could be your ambassadors, living as aliens on this planet to bring an example to those who don't have one and bring the word of God to them and the gospel to them who've never heard it. So I pray you would bless us in that way. And I pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.